you know, this is the problem that, you know, the, the state sort of turns us into disenfranchised people and then says, oh, well, you're not really, you're not really Aboriginal anymore. There's lost time, lost livelihood and the cumulative effect that that has both physically and mentally on your health and your well-being. You know, that idea of the law never being neutral and stable and our, our duty sort of to constantly interrogate um, the law. You're listening to the SEI podcast series brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Welcome everyone to uh, the event entitled uh, Never Again or Never Environmental Justice in Australia. Uh, before moving on, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm situated on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to uh, elders past, present and emerging. And I'd like to draw attention to two aspects of this acknowledgement, which take on special force in the context of today's discussion. One is that um, in the sort of virtual world, which we occupy nowadays, this idea of connection to physical space has taken on very different colours. Um, so perhaps if we could all spare a thought for the land of the people on which you are situated from wherever you're sort of streaming in from. The second is this idea of relationship with country and custodianship of the environment uh, is really front and centre to what we're talking about today. Um, so the title is of this event is, as I said, Never Again or Never, um, Environmental Justice in Australia. And it's a collaboration between the University of Sydney Philosophy Society and the Sydney Environment Institute. My name is Sam and I'll be, I'll be chairing uh, today's discussion between three wonderful speakers from the University of Sydney. The first is Professor Jacqueline Troy, who's Director of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research at the University of Sydney. Second is Dr. Sarah Spesny and of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and then Gemma Viney, a PhD student at the Sydney Environment Institute. And very shortly, I'll hand over to them to give sort of initial reactions to the topic and a background to their to their own research. Um, I'll just uh, the structure of the event will be I'll just give a very brief introduction um, of a few minutes to sort of canvas what we'll be talking about. Then I'll hand over to our speakers to uh, as I said give a sort of a five minute uh, discussion of their research and thoughts. Then we'll move into a and that will go for about half an hour as I'll be speaking about five to ten minutes each. Uh, and then we'll move into a sort of semi-structured uh, discussion between the speakers where um, you're welcome to type in uh, questions into the chat and, and um, me and Gemma uh, will, um, wonderful, we've got someone zooming in from the USA, um, and, uh, and I will sort of moderate that discussion a bit and then we will leave about a good half an hour at the end for you all to speak directly and, and have a, a sort of real conversation uh, as much as that's possible with, with 70 people, which is, which is wonderful to see such a great turnout. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I'll jump into to just a very quick introduction before I hand over to people with, with knowledge superior to mine. Um, so the, the, the title of the event uh, is, is Never Again or Never, and, and, and that borrows, and this idea, this phrase Never Again borrows from the title of the interim report into the destruction of the Jukang Gorge, which occurred in May 2020, uh, which was entitled Never Again. And the, the Jukang Gorge is something which really, I think, captured the, the sort of cultural psyche of Australia when it occurred. Um, and it, it was when Rio Tinto detonated um, a blast to extend their iron ore mine in the Pilbara region of uh, Western Australia. And it destroyed a site of immense cultural significance 
um, to the Putu, Kunti, Kurama and Pinakura peoples of that region. And it was described as one of the, the worst, worst avoidable tragedies in, in modern Australian history. And one thing which I think people found particularly shocking uh, about, the, uh, about the destruction was that it was authorised under the native title um, legislation in, in force in Western Australia. Um, and as a, my background is as a, is as a law student, um, and so when I heard that, it, it, it does sound very shocking that, that something so um, morally offensive could have been legally legally right. And it got me thinking about to what extent the law as a system and at a British uh, and sort of the British uh, inherited common law system that which we have in Australia is properly set up to uh, remedy certain kinds of loss and properly set up to protect certain uh, groups which might be foreign to the traditional uh, Eurocentric um, epistemologies which it prioritizes um, and to give, to give a background on that inquiry um, the, the parliamentary inquiry that was launched in the wake of the Jukung Gorge the, the 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 report never again was published in December 2020 and the final report was published recently in October 2021 entitled a way forward uh, and so really the, the space they're operating in here is this idea of um, the law on the one hand, the environment and Aboriginal Australia on another hand, uh, on the other hand, and also questions and, and philosophical questions which come in here, which I think are really important uh, and sort of shed a new light. Um, questions of how can we remedy certain types of wrong? Are there certain rights that the legal system, uh, are there a certain extent, are there certain rights that can never be properly cemented in the legal system that are really should be left for social and cultural discussion? And this idea of different epistemologies and relationship with, with land and the environment which come in and, and conflict in this area. Um, one thing which I will, another thing which I'll say to contextualize the discussion is, um, and again, this is sort of more my legal thinking on the topic, but is by no means the extent of the, the topic. But for example, in the, in the 20th century, the law, uh, something that the law really struggled to get its head around was how to, uh, um, compensate and recognize psychological injury as a topic for, um, because the, the law was most at home when someone can point to an injury on their body or their house that had been knocked over and say, you know, this is injury that I've suffered. This is how much it, it, it costs. And this is what I want you to pay me to, to, you know, so I can be whole again, so to speak. And psychological injury was something that the law really struggled with because it was seen to be intangible and, and not really readily the subject of proof. And in many ways, questions of destruction of uh, sites of uh, immense historical and cultural significance and environmental significance present very similar, uh, if not even more um, seemingly um, insurmountable barriers when, when, when an act of destruction has already occurred, like in the case of Jukang Gorge, and the question is how, how this can be remedied. Um, and so that, that's sort of a, a legal context to keep in mind. And one other thing that I'd say is that the idea, the, the, the interface between Aboriginal Australia and the British legal system, which we've inherited, is one that is, is I mean, it's trite to say that it's very fraught and it continues to be an area which is very dynamic today. One reason for that is that we don't have a recognition of Aboriginal Australians in the constitution. So their, their place has always been something that's been quite unsure. And to give an idea of the sort of liminal space which Aboriginal Australians are sort of uh, uh, cordoned into, 
um, we, we it often falls to the courts and rather than the government to uh, sort of rec recognise different steps in um, Aboriginals Aboriginal Australians place in place in Australia and in the legal system. One would be one example of this would be um, the decision in 1992 in Mabo where it was recognised that that native title had survived. Uh, um, British colonisation, and which led to the establishment of a federal native title scheme. And very recently, in a, in a case which perhaps was less, cele less celebrated or less reported, was the case of love in the High Court in 2020, where it was recognised that people who could show they were quote-unquote Aboriginal were held not to be subject to um, uh, the aliens' power in the Constitution, meaning they couldn't be deported because it was perceived that they belonged to Australia. And so this, it is a really interesting and, and dynamic space of, of how our Eurocentric legal system interacts with First Nations people in Australia, one that's by no means settled. Uh, and so I think we should keep that in mind as well. But with all, the, with all that in mind, I will now hand over to our speakers to give uh, an introduction of, of themselves and their thoughts on this topic. And although I've, I've sort of given a few legal musings just from my experience, uh, really the, the, the topic is, is one that can be explored from and will be explored in this event from a really sort of social and practical view of how the legal system is actually experienced by people. And we're very lucky to have um, Sara here to give a comparative perspective with, uh, with Brazil and Latin America in particular, which will be really interesting to hear. So thank you, everyone. Um, as I said, it will be merged into more of a discussion later on. Uh, and please, obviously, when you when you speak and when you type questions, try and keep them sort of well well formulated and, and phrased as a question and or, or a statement to respond to. Um, and then we can hopefully have a really uh, organic discussion that way. So I might first hand over to Jackie just to introduce her thoughts on the topic and, and her background. Thank you, Jackie. Hi. Yeah. Well, look, I um, am really delighted to be part of this discussion um, and I've had a quick look at what's been put into the chats and it's great to see such an awareness of other parts of Australia, particularly in the north and the west, um, that are of great concern to people. I'm Narragu of the Snowy Mountains in southeastern Australia. Um, I've, I've lived through a lifetime where people were like, what? there are Aboriginal, what, Aboriginal people of what, the ski fields of the Snowy Mount, but what, you know, sort of, uh, I even had another Aboriginal person who was from Central Australia say to me one day, so what do you call your, what do you call your country? And I said, well, we call it the high country, you know, there are a lot of Aboriginal groups, so I don't, and he said, but isn't that what, isn't that only what white fellas call it? Um, well, it is the only really high country in Australia. We're alpine Aboriginal people. I'm a linguist and an anthropologist and uh, amongst other things. Um, but um, And I want to say to you that you, Australia, while we all slept in the, the Rona, the COVID-19, nearly two years now, um, the Australian government without anybody's permission from my part of the, um, Aboriginal Australia, um, blew up my valley, our core country, Lobs Hole. You could, you will never see something as beautiful as Lobs Hole. It's just this alpine environment that um, is unique. It's listed by UNESCO. The whole of our country is UNESCO listed unique alpine biosphere. Um, 
it is treated like the playground of the rich and famous. Um, you'll be delighted to hear that if you're not skiing it in the winter, and I've got nothing wrong with skiing, I'm a skier or snowboarding or whatever else, alpine touring, whatever, um, you can now spend your summers um, whizzing around on mountain bikes, um, ripping the place up. Um, you can join all the other feral animals up in that country, like the wild horses and brumbies, the pigs. Oh, the deer, by the way, are protected because they're game. And we wouldn't want to stop the shooters who like to shoot game um, from having deer to shoot. Um, so they're actually protected. But our rights is the Narugu, and there are other groups named up in that area, Walgaloo, um, Bitterwool further down. There are people right down into Victoria and on the south coast of New South Wales who all identify with the high country. Um, you know, and we have to share our country with... Um, all these other people who are seen to have rights and all these feral animals um, that even have more protection than we ever will. And now my own country, Lobs Hole, is completely ruined. Snowy 2's report said 20,000 years at least of continuous occupation and Kaboomba all gone. So I have, I can just do a quick screen, screen share. So this, this is the machine that they've used to tunnel a massive hole through the mountain. Oh, it's very dangerous, by the way, and they're very proud of, you know, how clever they are in um, being able to do this tunneling. It was imported from China to tunnel a hole through my country. There you go. Tunneling away. Yeah, three cheers for Australia and technology. And this is it. There you go. Chinese. <laughs> it's um, renewable energy, everybody, and gives gives jobs to people. You know, Snowy has been giving jobs to Australians since just after World War II when Snowy One happened. Uh, my great-grandmother apparently viewed, who was Naragu, viewed the efforts of Snowy. Yep, there you go, all lined up in their hybrid. hybrid. Where's ScoMo? It's probably there somewhere, but it was Turnbull's idea. Um, you know, um, they were given a chance to view what the first Snowy Mountain scheme did, which incidentally um, changed the climate so much by the building of Yukonbeam Dan. It doesn't snow down in that area anymore. Um, and my great-grandmother said, oh, well, okay, that's all right. I mean, thinking to herself and her sister, my mother said recently to me, well, they didn't think Lobs Hole would ever be affected, which is our core country, as I said. Um, but uh, they would be horrified to see what's happened. So give a thought to the southeast of Australia when we're weeping over the, the north and the west, which I do weep over. When Jukan Gorge happened, it um, to me reminded me of what happened with the Bamiyan Buddhas um, when the so-called terrible Taliban blew them up and I say so called because they're indigenous people from that area as well and while I don't hold with their politics I don't see any difference this is terrorism as well anyway so I'll stop there wonderful thank you very much Jackie and I think that I mean that's that's a really solemn reminder of, of the sort of I mean it's, it's the the disparities in, in in the way these things are reported and, and just the, the way that the sort of almost arbitrary or, or fickle nature of how some things capture people's attention and, and other things equally um, 
equally deserving of it uh, uh, go unnoticed. I might hand over to uh, Sarah now to give a really, um, uh, just a background of, of, of her thoughts on the topic and, and the perspective that she brings. Thanks, Sam. Um, thanks, uh, Jackie. That was really um, heartbreaking, but I was also thinking how, um, how contentious this topic is between environmental discourses. And I'm from Costa Rica. Uh, if you know anything about Costa Rica, probably is that it's this very progressive country in terms of environmental politics. Um, and it has functioned for a few decades now on this concept of um, green energy. And, and it has been able to do so um, at the cost of a lot of indigenous land. So, so I can see how that, um, how that plays out in different, different contexts. So it, it, it is very concerning, uh, but thanks for, for talking about that. Um, I am going to uh, present a little bit of what, what's happening in Brazil. Um, I am gonna share my screen and I'll focus a bit um, on uh, some recent um, events in, term, in terms of um, land rights in Brazil. And I think the, the, the starting point of this uh, conversation is interesting because Rio Tinto is actually um, operates as, as well in Brazil. And, and, and it, 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 is, um, it states that it, it operates, um, it doesn't manage the operations, but it does have partnerships. So I think this helps us to think sort of transnationally about the, the issue. Um, but also um, what, what I find very central to the discussion is um, the political landscape as well. And, and if you heard anything of Brazil recently, probably is um, the, you know, this Trumpian figure of um, Jair Bolsonaro, the president, and some of the um, law legislations that have been introduced um, in, in his government. Um, what, what I find interesting in, in Brazil, um, and Sam, you mentioned this in, in your introduction, was um, sort of the place that indigenous pe peoples have in the constitution. So in Brazil, Brazil does have a very progressive constitution. Um, it, the, the constitution was drafted sort of in, in sort of a very hopeful moment because it was coming up from dictatorship. So it had this um, sort of concern um, for social justice and individual and social rights. So it does recognize it's not only plural, um, political pluralism, but formally recognizes indigenous peoples um, in their social organization, in their language, belief system. And it, it um, specifies that they're sort of the native land owners of the land. So they're, they're this, um, they have this uh, primary right to land. Um, in this sense, I, I find that we, we can then pick up and talk about the, the limits of the law because so we do have a very progressive constitution in Brazil. And of course there are other <clears throat> legislative bodies that set up to protect um, indigenous land. Of course, there's a, a myriad of problems already um, in this uh, context, but um, more specifically uh, and recently, there has been 
a, <clears throat> a proposal to change the criteria of this land demarcation. And this is called, um, this proposal is called the Marco Temporal, which in English is a bit strange. It, I, I, the translation is the time frame argument, which I know sounds a bit weird, but um, the Marco Temporal, so then what it establishes is that um, the right to land in, in, for indigenous people, um, they have to prove that they occupied the land on the day of the enactment of the constitution, with, which was the 5th October of 88. Um, of course, this is uh, just incredibly hard to prove um, for many different reasons, um, more, more commonly because a lot of indigenous communities throughout Brazil um, have been displaced and have their land takes, taken away. So they're in the process um, of, of some form of litigation or have their, their land um, sort of uh, shrunken in, in a way. Um, for, of course, the, the technical arguments behind the, this proposal is that it, it, it sort of grants um, legal security in terms of um, the right to private property. So it would establish clear boundaries around land distribution. Um, this, of course, undermines enormously uh, indigenous recognition. Um, so right now, this, this um, case is in, in the Supreme Court. Um, we don't have a formal date because it's being reviewed. Um, but I did want to sort of um, touch on the topic before I wrap up and then we can move to a discussion about sort of the culture of protest in Brazil and Latin America more broadly. Um, a lot of these uh, pictures are, are recent and, and have been distributed in mass media. But I think what I find particularly interest, interesting in, in these um, sort of the texture of the protests is, um, and the language that these pro protests have, have um, generated focuses focus on at least two things that I find uh, interesting to, to think about. And the first one is the temporal aspect and that of law. Um, in one of the slides you see here, even though you don't necessarily understand what it says, but um, they focus on sort of our history does not start in 1988. Um, so it calls to that limitation of the law. Um, and that insertion into a broader colonial history. Um, and the second sort of language that they, they're um, bringing is this idea of, of life, um, that it's not only about land, it's about life. So there's a shift between that right to property and land as an object, like from a Western point of view, and translate that into actually, um, this is a matter of, of life in, in a very multi-layered way. Um, and so, so I think those two very clear ways in which um, a cultural protest um, sort of speaks differently to, to power. And, and I think I'm gonna wrap it up there. Um, I could talk a lot about police repression. I wanted to insert a few slides about it because it has, of course, really reflected what the, the government response has been. Um, it is 
common that um, protest is heavily repressed, but I think it's even more worrying when, when um, there are protesters that have kids um, and, and um, peaceful protests. Perfect. Thank you very much, Sarah. And thank you for sharing those images. I think that was really interesting for everyone to see just a completely different aesthetic to what we're used to in Australia. Um, and points that, yeah, I think I'd love to come back to, like, for example, when you mentioned this idea of difficulties around um, proof of Aboriginality and occupation, it's exactly the same in Australia. And it would be interesting to hear Jackie's thoughts, for example, on sort of almost the indignity of it subjecting these type of things to formal proof in a courtroom and, and, and how that, uh, yeah, it's just a really interesting interface there. But I will hand over now to Gemma to, to wrap up this more presentation-based part of the event um, and with some background to her um, research and thinking. Thank you, Sam. Uh, and thanks so much, Jackie and Sarah, for sharing. That was just like, they were both such fascinating presentations and such important insight. Um, and I think... Well, so first I'd like to start by acknowledging that I'm zooming in from Darwell country uh, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Um, I apologise. I think I'm going to go a bit zoomed out and have a look at it, this topic a little bit from more of a theoretical environmental justice lens, um, but I can't wait. I agree with Sam. I can't wait to get back into the discussion because I just think there's so much rich conversation between your presentations that's going to be incredible. Um, so, yeah, I'm a PhD candidate based out of the Sydney Environment Institute, and my research is centred around an exploration of what environmental justice might sort of mean or look like in an Australian context. So from that sort of theoretical perspective, environmental justice is still a developing field in Australia, and a lot of the conversations regarding environmental justice are concentrated in sort of academic spaces. Much of the research that has been done is sort of primarily concerned with addressing questions of how or where environmental injustices might be occurring within and across Australia. And, and this is absolutely important in helping to identify and potentially address structures of environmental inequality, but it's also distinct from that sort of more grassroots origins that we see when we look at the environmental justice movement in the US, which is sort of where the, well, the term developed in the first place. And I don't, want to, I don't want to get bogged down too much in that background of scholarship and stuff like that, but the broad strokes here is that early environmental justice studies weren't undertaken as research into a phenomenon with that degree of distance, but as a collaboration between academics, activists and communities, and arguably even that distinction in itself is a sort of falsehood. So the thesis, the aim of my thesis was slash is very much ongoing, um, to apply that same principle of participant action research that was so foundational in the origins of environmental justice movement politically to an Australian context. What that's looked like in practice has been trying to build research around community and in particular community need. Um, and that brought me to working with anti-CSG community activists in the Narrabri region. So in collaboration with Lock the Gate, and with the Northwest Alliance, I prepared a submission to the Narrabri IPC hearing based on a series of inter interviews undertaken with residents of Narrabri and surrounding smaller communities. And these conversations were fra framed around the kinds of impacts that those community members anticipated should the project go ahead, as well as the existing and cumulative impacts that were already being experienced. Um, so having, having said that I didn't want to take too much time or get bogged down and then proceeding to needlessly ramble on for this introduction, um, what I really want to talk about today is the, 
kind of procedural limitations that communities have experienced from that angle of justice because I'm by no means a legal scholar and I'll leave, I'll leave that to you, Sam. Um, but yeah, what that lack of access and transparency actually is looking like for communities um, and how they're articulating their experiences. So one of the key impacts that was raised by participants was a sense of loss. It was lost time, lost livelihood and the cumulative effect that that has both physically and mentally on your health and your well-being. All participants indicated that they'd had to invest significant time and research in order to properly understand the project that had essentially become the neighbour of a lot of them. Um, and they described feeling misled at times intentionally by both the government and by Santos regarding the full scope of the project and its impacts. This meant people had to take time away from family, from friends and work in order to investigate questions that the government and Santos were refusing to answer. So best, well, social impact scholarship, but also procedural justice scholarship dictates that communities should have access to decision-making systems. And this necessitates transparency in order for communities to be in a position to provide informed consent. Beyond even this though, participants were describing physical and mental stresses from time and energy spent investigating the validity of Santos's claims. This is an essential feature of procedural justice and it instigates a phenomenon of campaign fatigue in which communities facing sort of these decade-long fights, or longer than decades in many cases, uh, with, you know, mining and resource extraction, resource management companies, eventually begin to acquiesce in because of this pattern of acceptance that has themes of sort of inevitability and disempowerment. Campaign fatigue is also fostered in the dynamics of powerlessness and disenfranchisement brought about by an unjust prioritisation of mining or resource extraction interests over communities. And in the confusion associated with an overload of poorly communicated information, which communities are then required to sort of sift through in order to understand the full scope of the project. So participants also raised the inherent lack of fairness and transparency across the actions of both the proponent, Santos, and the government when it came to pushing the project through the approvals process. Within the interviews, this was most commonly expressed in reference to issues of mistrust or lack of access to decision-making systems associated with the planning and impacts of the development. All nine participants framed the procedural structures around the assessment and approval of the Narrabri Gas Project as illegitimate and untrustworthy. And this was particularly explored through the lack of observable accountability for the proponent to either meet or their safety and community obligations or be held responsible for their failures to do so. Um, and I, I'm hoping I'm not running out of time. There was just one little thing that I wanted to touch on that's sort of off topic, but um, I'm hoping it has relevance. And to peek behind the curtain a little bit, it was something that Jackie raised before, the, before this talk started. But one of the things that came up a lot came up overwhelmingly in conversations with communities was the loss of relationships with friends, with neighbours, within social circles of community groups, that overwhelming feeling of being unable to speak about the project, the fear of the breadth of the divide between those in favour and those opposed. There was also a consistent fear that this would only get worse when the project was approved. Um, one respondent even described a shroud of distrust over their neighbourhood that had been seeded by implications that someone somewhere had sold their property to Santos and, and it just creates this breakdown of community groups and 
All of this contributes to a slow but distinct dismantling of the culture, of a community, of a place, and a sinister and intentional disruption to the social fabric that leaves people feeling isolated in the struggle to oppose the development and pushes people out who no longer have a relationship to the place. Because and I'll, I'll end on this, I don't, again, don't want to ramble too much, but it's important to remember that place is not, you know, relationship to place is built on the people, it's built on the country, it's built on everything to do with that. And as soon as we start to dismantle little bits of that, you just, you essentially, I don't know, you completely get in the way of place attachment and that's so inherently tied to our way of life and the way that we look forward to living. Anyway, yes, I'll leave it there. Perfect. Thanks so much, Gemma. And thank you to, to Sarah and to Jackie as well for a really interesting and, and, and diverse introduction to this topic. And that's sort of exactly what we're, what we're all about to sort of get these different perspectives and, and see how they all work together. Um, so now we'll phase into a, a sort of more semi-structured part of the event for sort of 20 minutes, half an hour, where I'll sort of prompt some questions to the speakers. And at this stage, if, if any members of the audience have any questions, it would be great if you could type them into the chat at this stage and I'll sort of draw on those as we're, as we're going through. And then, but if you have any really um, real kind of zingers, then perhaps you can save them for the, the, the final um, 20 minutes, half an hour and, and, and speak directly to the, um, to the panelists here. Um, to, to start off with one thing, one thing which I'd love to hear Jackie's thoughts on would be um, we've spoken a lot about procedures of consultation uh, being alienating and destructive for communities, but but in the context of something like Lobs Hole or Jukun Gorge, where the tragedy has already occurred, what do you think is the sort of right approach to a, a remedy in this in this perspective in, in this context, and to what extent do you think that? ideas of like formal ideas of justice are adequate or is this really a sort of social socio-cultural response government response i'm just sort of uh, where should these communities turn oh well i <laughs> sorry <this> as, is... <laughs> as Gen, well as Gemma was just saying sadly um <laughs> Um, it's not quite your question but what does happen is communities turn on themselves i think probably i i think i'm more uh, traumatised maybe by the way in which the rhetoric about who has the right to speak about what and um, and um, who is the right person and and then it, then it will develop in our part of um, Australia into who is or isn't Aboriginal and back to my point before about what there are Aboriginal people up in the snow oh there's people couldn't live up there all year round so magically all around the world, Indigenous people can live in, you know, I used to do research in a place called Winnipeg in the middle of um, Canada and um, people are in subs, like minus 50 temperatures and have always lived, you know, just tens of thousands of years of human occupation um, all over the world in areas I do research in northwest Pakistan where it's just heading into the probably minus 10s, maybe down to minus 20 in some parts, you know, but somehow Aboriginal Australians, you know, back to the primitivism of uh, about us, we we couldn't live in country like that, you know. So there's this sort of, there are even myths created. So this sort of getting access to resources, you know, making the most of extractive capitalism, 
which has become in many ways what Australia is all about now. We don't even create manufacturing from the things that we extract from this country anymore. We just sell it all overseas or in the case of what's going on in my country, we create a little bit of energy for the grid that could probably be more effectively created otherwise with other renewable energy sources, but in a country with less water than any other place on earth really any other continent on earth we go for hydro power you know um we, we sort of get caught up we aboriginal people get caught up in all these other ridiculousnesses and the ridiculous discussion about who is or who isn't and who should speak and who shouldn't and unfortunately the legislative frameworks that set up are set up you know i help draft the native title act for example that was one of my first jobs in government straight out of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, straight out of the academy with my fresh new PhD, I landed smack bang in the middle of Marbo number two, and it's the Commonwealth's response to that. And um, all fine ideas, and I know that Eddie Marbo had great ideas, great plans for rights being recognised, but the minute you start legislating and creating frameworks even if they're an attempt to mirror what we as Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people have in our own world originally, it starts to become still a white person's view of what we as the Indigenous people um, do. And there isn't really any way for us to comfortably engage with it um, because you always, it always comes down to, all right, who's going to speak for your group? Um, right, can we can we please just get the list? Like for the Narugu, there's now on one of the national parks agreements for my country, there's one person representing all the Narugu and a person who actually doesn't even like being in the cold country, self-admitted. So it's sort of it it becomes more ridiculousness. We've we've become part of the whole ridiculousness of um of governments trying to take more from the country of the community of the wider community just going well this is all too hard and look let let the aboriginal people themselves sort it out you know and it just so who do we who do we talk to um well this group's a good start um talk to this group talk to people who actually want to try and figure this out and get away from um endlessly you, you cannot solve everything but at least if you open the space to, to ongoing conversation, um, it gives us a chance to have a real say at all stages of everything. Lobs hole should not have happened. You've all lost. I've lost. We've all lost, you know. Thank you, Jackie. Yeah, and that's, uh, I think those, those words ring, ring true, absolutely. Do, do Sarah or Gemma have any responses just off the bat of that? No, I've, I really just want to thank Jackie for um for really reiterating well iterating that so beautifully it is so hugely important and it's such a complicated question that's been fostered by just like a lack of I mean again not a legal scholar by any means but a lack of compassion a lack of understanding a lack of acknowledgement in legal structures that we've put in place has sort of created these situations for communities to have to navigate as I was sort of talking through a little bit in what I was talking about. Um, yeah, it just creates these really toxic spaces um, and puts a lot of pressure on people. And I think if anything, and I, I don't I don't want to get us off track by any means, um, but one thing that 
I actually, Sam, your article um, prompted me to think about was this, all of these questions of, of who speaks for country and, and who speaks for who, who has the right to speak. Um, when we, I know that there's quite a bit of movement happening at the moment around the idea of, of giving country or giving landmarks or giving sites a voice. Um, and I think that that also, and again, I'm not asking us to have this conversation here, but um, it's an interesting question of, of how do you give voice to country when is, are you not just creating more situations that Jack has highlighted of, of who has that right to that voice? Thank you very much, Gemma. And, and just to, to um, Sue Reid sent into the, the chat an interesting question, which I think we can touch on here, that is it useful to think about who the law brings into the relationship with the environment, which I think both Jackie and Gemma, you were touching on about this idea of nominating a spokesperson and this idea of, of needing these these really clear structures that the law sort of really likes to operate in. And for example, uh, it's also a problem with with um, with seeking redress of, of questions of environmental and cultural damage in the legal system is often you, the, the, the claimant needs to be able to show that they've suffered some kind of loss um, to, to have standing to bring particular claims. I mean, obviously there are ways around this, but this idea of that the, the, uh, human, you know, one person or a group of people is the lens through which the law needs to operate to then address the, the broader questions of loss rather than just looking at the, the inherent value of the site directly is I think a really pertinent point here. Sarah, I was wondering if you, I mean, you could build on whatever, um, whatever you like from what, what's gone before, but in our meeting earlier this week, you, you spoke about, this idea of certain rights not being able to be fully entrenched in the law and that there are some things which really just extend beyond formal legal structures. And in the context of, of Brazil, where there is this um, progressive constitution, but perhaps a, a very different reality, um, it might, perhaps you could speak a bit more about this sort of, um, I'm not, this sort of mismatch between, well, I think what, um, what I've heard court referred to as parchment guarantees or you have these very, very progressive words on paper, um, but perhaps a very different reality. Thanks, Sam. Um, yeah, um, we, we were talking about that. And, and I think that idea of um, there's always something that escapes the law is I find interesting. And, and that is um, sort of thinking of uh, Judith Butler's work um, in which she sort of explains how there's, there's this, you know, there's a codification of the law, uh, but then there's this embodiment and there's this inescapable um, or ungraspable element of, in rights. And I think that that makes me think um, how there's this um, sort of parallel movement between law, and again, I'm not a legal scholar, so um, this is from an anthropologist's point of view, that there's this cycle between social and cultural change and law, and sort of these, these two intertwine, and, and um, there's so, sort of social change happens with, within that cycle. Um, but thinking specifically in Brazil is um, sort of to your question, I think um, that architecture of the Brazilian constitution and the legislation. Um, it's very easy to drown in the bureaucracy of the state. Um, so there's very different ways in which um, the state can um, exterminate people. Um, so it's not only through, even though that that's what I've, 
I've studied for some time, sort of that blunt, um, um, repressive capacity of the state, but there's also sort of this bureaucracy and, and sort of that legal structure can actually be what uh, sort of entraps and and um, and breaks. And, and uh, Gemma and Jackie were both talking about sort of that sort of the loss of relationships and that that disintegration. And um, there's this um, a journalist, this scholar in Brazil who's called um, Ayrton Krenak. And um, he, he, he does a very interesting critique of the environmental movement. Um, and when people talk about sort of this, um, the, sort of this um, doom scenario we're looking at, and he, he, he always talks and reminds us that there has been end of worlds before uh, and worlds have been destroyed before. Um, so, and I feel this, this, this is a compelling thought for me to sort of understand how this sort of legal structure perpetuate, per, I don't know how to say that word in English, perpetually uh, dismantles sort of those, those relationships and those, those um, communities. No, thank you for that, Sarah. And, and it, I think Brazil presents a really interesting contrast to Australia in that, as you were saying, Sarah, the Brazilian constitution, I, I have to admit, I haven't read it, but uh, seems to be much more uh, formally progressive than the Australian one, which is a very bare bones document with very few substantive rights enumerated. Um, it's, it's sort of, yes, there's a disconnect between, yes, words on a paper and, and how these systems are experienced. Jackie, do you have any reactions to um, this kind of disconnect in the Australian context? Yes, uh, it's interesting. I, I travelled um, in Brazil and um, I, I, yeah, I, the thing that I found really distressing there was that I, and I had anthropologists saying to me, well, of course, that's not, and linguists, oh, that, but that person isn't really Indigenous anymore. Like once they were, and this is one person in their own lifetime, once they were and then they weren't because they'd left their reservation, um, left their lands. Um, and, you know, in Brazil, it was just openly sort of stated and uh, it was a way of erasing the rights of people who were the um, people who'd moved to cities to get work or, you know, had to or been forced off country because it had been taken from them. And in Australia, um, you know, more than 60% of the Indigenous population lives in the southeast of Australia, particularly in and around Sydney and down towards Melbourne, um, which so you know we 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 are people who define ourselves according to our connection to country, and people have this great yearning to be able to continue that connection to country, um, and people who haven't been able to easily get back onto country as look you know I keep going back to Lobs Hole you know well I went back to Lobs Hole in February this year with my daughter and a friend of hers in my four-wheel drive I sort of went up into the country and I thought I'll just take the kids down and you know have a look at the valley and um I didn't take my red handle pliers with me or I might have the red handle keys or I would have um been able to get down there because everything had been locked off and fenced 
And then I thought that would look bad if it was, you know, Sydney University professor or Indigenous research jailed for attempting to enter, you know, work site, <laughs> which I would change to, of course, trying to get back onto country. But, you know, this is the problem that, you know, the, the state sort of turns us into disenfranchised people and then says, oh, well, you're not really you're not really Aboriginal anymore. And then everybody gets all upset about people who are still seen to be more Aboriginal because they've got more access to country. But then those people don't have access to country. Someone put in the chat about Kato Muir, who's a great mate of mine, you know, has worked for years and years and years to get his people's rights recognised. Um, and, you know, there we have all this legislation in Australia um, and it, a lot of it is really just paper. It's just words on paper. I mean, I've been involved in helping to review it, write it. I worked for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait, Torres Strait Islander Commission for years, which was the nearest thing we've ever had to self-government in this country. I've worked for the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council for the Department of Aboriginal Affairs, and I was Director of Research at IAT, the Australian Institute for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. And I, in the end, I feel like you know, late in my own career now, what have, what have I actually ever done? I couldn't even stop, you know, the destruction of my core country. Um, I had to show my 93-year-old mother a picture of what was Lob's Hole. You know, um, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of the people are sympathetic. I think there's been quite a bit in the chat about how do we do something different. Well, I actually think citizen movements work. I'm wearing my, um, what is it? Yeah, the Sea Shepherd T-shirt, which I really love to wear, apart from the fact that it's big and roomy. But, you know, Sea Shepherd, they just get out there and stop it. <laughs> you know, I said to my daughter, I think I'll just go and stand in front of that. Someone called it the big donut making machine. I think I might rename it that, the big tunneling gadget. You know, I might maybe if I just go stand it and I get tunneled into the mountain, well, that might get someone's attention, you know. So I think we do actually have to... Um, take risks and get vocal and um, you know there are other great movements around the world like Black Lives Matter um, Reclaim the Night you know the you know all these kinds of things that have actually made a difference we can make a difference but take the words off the paper and see them go through the air make it happen Perfect. No, thank you for that, Jackie. And I think this really got, yeah, just goes to the heart of what we're talking about here, that, that, that there's been, I mean, I guess 30 years since we've had the native title regime in Australia and you have to, I guess, at some when these things keep happening again and again, you have to at some stage question whether, uh, yeah, to what extent that they're, they're effective or ineffective at all. And, and you might have to look elsewhere with, with, with discussions like this and, and citizen initiatives like you're referring to. Um, one question for Gemma, which I had, which which came through the chat um, from Monica, was sort of it was phrased in terms of the role of lawyers in in representing big corporations versus community groups. But I think can be opened up more broadly, and you can sort of uh, analogize this to your research. But to, to what extent are there sort of disparities in in the the I mean, inherently, you know, that people like Rio Tinto will have access to the best lawyers in the era of government and, and and access to the ministers. To what extent is there some kind of support structure or, or people representing the interests of the community as, as problematic as uh, uh, as that term might be to just say community interests as a 
as a term as a whole? Like, uh, you know, are there, yeah, is, is there any sort of, I mean, uh, can you speak a bit about this sort of power imbalance between um, the stakeholders? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think there are a number of issues, right? There's absolutely access. Um, I mean, the fact that corporations have just like the amount of money and you look at the documents that are produced and, and they're produced intentionally to, to just be legalese, so confusing, you know, just I can't even think of how many pages of sort of environmental impact assessments and stuff like that that are produced by corporations um, with teams of researchers behind them and not not to demonise those researchers by any means, but, you know, teams and teams of people are working to bamboozle communities. Mm. Um, And then I think the other other side of this is the thing that... um, yeah, the first question that I asked uh, everyone I spoke to for this project was how knowledgeable are you about, the like, you know, just, a, you know, your general background research, how, how knowledgeable do you feel about this project? And everyone sort of said, oh, I'm not that knowledgeable. I'm not, you know, I'm maybe a seven out of 10 or something like that. And then they would proceed to just have the, like, most incredible understanding of what was going on the depth of their knowledge about so many different aspects of the project, so many different aspects of the fight that they'd been in, all of these things that they would feed back to me. And I, I, I remember doing the transcriptions and just being like, I, half of this stuff I have to go, you know, I have to spend just hours Googling to try to figure out what any of this even means. And the amount of time that has to be, I know I said it already, but the amount of time that has to be invested mm. in order to even have an understanding of of where you stand as a community member. It's, it's not even about necessarily getting to that stage of having representation or having a sort of legal fight. It's like, where, where even are we within this fight? The amount of time and energy that that takes, that in itself is a power imbalance. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's impossible to comprehend the difference of scale between like the time and energy that people have from a corporate perspective, you know people paid to do this stuff versus you know you're a landowner who's just been told that there's a mine that's moving in 5k from your house what does that mean what does that look like can I leave do I have to leave all of that stuff even just to get to the beginning of trying to trying to fight against it so yeah it's the scale of difference is just immense. As Gemma was talking I was I you know thinking about um Brazil and and I think there's another aspect there that that I don't know I don't know much about Australia but um, you know not not only in sort of individual in this um, uh, power imbalance between sort of um, corporate and communities but also within the political arena itself so I'm thinking in Brazil it's very sort of strong that lobby of um, representatives from um, agro-industry from, so they call it the triple B. So it's um, bullets, Bible, and well, it doesn't translate in English, but it would be um, like the um, agro-industry. So, um, and just the amount of um, um, money that comes to political parties um, that then shape sort of these, this, for example, sort of these um, uh, laws and this pro- bill proposals uh, is incredibly powerful. So w- we see as well sort of this, this alliance between 
sort of that big corporation within the political arena. So it's not even within dialogue with communities or, spe or specific cases. It, it is um, a bit everywhere. And I think that's also a very powerful way of just overriding um, access to, to um, information and um, just passing bills um, with, without consultation. Can I, can I just add, I, I remember when I was, um, when the Native Title Act was first um, enacted um, and I, I said to this group that I was working with, um, I was the only Aboriginal person in it in ATSIC that was representing, I guess, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission into government. Um, I said, well, look, okay, we've got the Act now. The first thing we have to do now is go and explain it to everybody in Australia because, I mean, there'll be a lot of communities and they're were everywhere who just thought who didn't realize that there was people who don't realize they don't have their rights that might sound stunning but they just well you know what non-aboriginal people think about aboriginal people's rights is irrelevant they're there they're on country that's um and um and i said so let's at the very least create some plain english guides to um the access framework around the act you know and um and then let's translate it into languages, uh, you know, because there's still this myth in Australia that there that all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia speak standard Australian English, which is just nonsense. Um, and um, people thought I was just it was this was just rubbish. Like, what? Why would you have a plain English guy? And one lawyer said to me, "There are some things they just don't need to know." I mean, meaning they being me and other Aboriginal people. And I said that to him. Some things they just don't need to know. I was like, it's about them, me, us. You know, this is the Native Title Act. Like, if we don't understand it, it's about us. And when we have to demonstrate our rights through this act, if we don't understand it and it's about us, then there's something very seriously wrong. But that's the underpin, that's the problem. You know, governments divest all the power for decision-making about everything that is actually still Indigenous rights all over the world. They divest it and they um, to themselves and then they write it up in ways that um, it just becomes completely inaccessible, as Gemma and Sarah both saying. So that has to stop. At the very least, everybody, anybody who's here in government, never write another thing again that people can't just understand if you're you know just take it to your nearest five-year-old child and if you can't help them understand what it is you're trying to say then you're in trouble thank you jackie i think that yes that, that's i mean what what's the point to rights if they if they can't be enforced obviously is a, is a almost trite point but i think is something that is really lacking a lot of the time um one thing I, which i wanted to ask uh sarah about was and i think this might pull um closer to, to one of your areas of interest being the culture around protest and things like that is it Jackie mentioned this idea of you know you know if, if the law is is proving inadequate where do we turn this idea of sort of citizen action um and not to conflate too many issues but it makes me think of um things like COVID lockdowns and that I think personally I was surprised about how um, compliant Australians were by and large with the lockdowns in Australia and this idea around you know um government control, obeying government order, protesting, things like that. To what extent do you think there are cultural differences between Australia on the one hand and uh, Brazil, for example, or in the context of these new protests, do you notice anything that 
that, that jumps out there? Um, well, the first thing would be, um, you know, the Bolsonaro government is is um, denialist of COVID. So there's there's not an, an issue in terms of um, uh, public health orders. Um, and on the contrary, we've seen um, in the past couple of years, not only protests um, for as, as this case, for example, with the Marco Temporal, but we've seen protests in favor of um, the Bolsonaro government. Uh, so, so, so I think in, in Latin America more broadly, but specifically in, in the case of Brazil, protests is a very intrinsic part of democracy. And it really sort of picks up with the democratization, re-democratization process. Um, and and it, that goes both ways, sort of in 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 movements, uh, um, right wing movements or pro Bolsonaro movements have have really been um, a very important force uh, within the you know the political landscape in Brazil uh, in the past couple years. Um, I think that sort of it. There's cycles of, of protest, and for example, with the Marco Temporal, this was such a uh, sort of uh, um, politically such an important moment that there was a huge mobilization of uh, very different um, and uh, dispersed communities to to Brasilia to to the capital. Um, but of course, uh, Black Lives Matter was was pretty active in the past um, year and a half in Brazil as well. And there's plenty of reasons why uh, those protests sort of, even though they were in the wake of, of George Floyd, there's there's um, a lot of, um, you know, mother's movement and community movement around the issue, for example, of police violence um, and racism. Um, so it's definitely, one of those big pieces of the puzzle sort of um, that that um, are pressuring uh, are pressuring the the political landscape. but but as I said, that goes both ways. We see a lot of very loud you know um, noise from a lot of pro bolsonaro um, um, movement. So it is strong and in every sense of the of the word. Oh, wonderful. Gemma, did you have any like experiences or, or anecdotal thoughts on this idea of, sort of citizen action? You sort of talk about this idea of landowners being drowned in sort of bureaucratic traps. Is there Are there any sort of experiences of people just being like, well, you know, stuff it, I'll just go and, you know, as Jackie said, stand in front of the, um, the digger or whatever? Absolutely. Yeah. Um... Yeah, hugely. I think that there was, at least amongst the people that I spoke to, there was just a real feeling of like, well, we're not letting them on. Like, we're not letting this happen. So they can, we can either, we can either stop it here with the legal systems, or we'll stop it by parking ourselves in front of the gate. Like, you know, it's it's lock the gate, but it's literal lock the gate. You know, we're gonna, we're not gonna let them onto this land. Actually, when both Jackie and and Sarah were speaking, really um, sprung to mind for me. One of the things that's really obvious for me is when I was speaking to the to landowners like you would call it citizen activism right but it almost isn't activism because it's it's just trying to be able to continue living the way that they have been living and to be able like it's just it's trying to stop someone from like literally stopping you being able to function as a person um and I think that for me particularly as a sort of in inner city kid who's you know 
reads about the environment and blah, blah, blah. I think it's so easy to get a really despondent in the face of, of climate change and in the face of all of these um, projects being put in place and, and approvals happening and it just feels like there's there's no scope for change and there's no scope for action and all this stuff but one of the things that I think has in a few of these um, SEI events that SEI has run and, and different talks and stuff that has come up is it's so important not to lose sight of exactly what Jackie was saying in particular like the, the heart of the people at the heart of these projects, the people that are going to be impacted directly. And so we, when we think about things in that big picture, climate change, existential dread lens, we can kind of lose sight of that and we can lose sight of the importance of taking up the fight every single time because there are always people at the heart of this that are going to be impacted now and are going to no longer have access to country and going to no longer be able to work or live or have the relationships that they have had for their lives and it's important to not I, I this is a bit preachy and definitely off topic but yeah it was some, something that's really resonated with me recently is just the extent to which we we particularly those who aren't going to be as directly impacted except in the long-term sort of climate crisis reality need to make sure that we don't lose sight of that incredibly real impact that's happening right now Perfect. No, thank you very much for that, Gemma. Um, and I, we've got Sue in the chat saying, should we order a bulk supply of angle pipes and chains for SEI academics, which I think is a, is a very inspired idea. Well, it could be an interesting, interesting project. I just really, um, you know, actually what we're doing today is is kind of like blocking the gates. You know, it's a, it, it might not seem that way. Um, I was absolutely despaired, as you can imagine, as I keep saying. Um, and in addition to what they're doing, they're also, Snowy is going to um, end my personal totem, which is the Kosciuszko Stocky Galaxia, the highest um, little river fish, very endangered um, fish because they're changing its environment completely and preventing it from being able to thrive. But And it will be gone completely and I do keep musing on what that means and what I should have done and I thought I was really feeling despairing and then I did a radio interview and the next thing the next within minutes I had Snowy Hydro in touch with me personally and then I um, put them in touch with my community's organization Narugu Nation Indigenous Corporation Katie Moore who's online was in um, who's very very good at making things happen, got a whole bunch of Sydney scientists together with um, Snowy and we had this discussion about um, how our community might be able to at least do some restoration, revegetation down in that country. Um, this is a very long, slow conversation for us with them, which may not end until my daughter is um, in her 80s and I'm long under the sod. But um, but the thing is, it you might think that just having a conversation like this um, is not the same as chaining yourself to the gates, but it is actually because the messages do get through and politicians are very vulnerable in case no one's noticed recently um, to popular opinion. We put them in there and we can remove them and remove them in very public, very um, embarrassing ways, you know. Um, and uh, the conversation is continuing now. I mean, I'm not sure where it's going with Snowy, but um, and I can't fix up what they've done, but the con conversations, public events and 
if they start proliferating, that's really what's going on in Brazil, isn't it, Sarah? It's just the, you know, rainforest peoples, Tupia Guarani and others just endlessly putting themselves out there. It's not the number of people who've actually been murdered trying to save their country. It's all the people who are out there. So back to your point about protests, Samuel, protests aren't always getting donated into a mountain. It's also... Um, having a public say and having the chance this you've given us a voice today you know this is really good uh no that's a very interesting point jackie i was actually going to uh, come back to something i mentioned uh, briefly but i think it relates to social protest um and is um you know uh, repression of protest and i think um that's also something that um that we have to as well consider. So it's not, not only, for example, in Brazil, that, that sort of culture of protest and that capacity to sort of mobilize um, grievances and um, through protest, but also um, it's um, illuminating of, of that position of the state of how heavily protest is, is repressed. And I, I feel like we're, starting to have that conversation in Australia. I didn't, I don't know if it, in the past it was like this. Um, I, I recently got here. So, um, but but in Brazil and Latin America more broadly, that's a huge part of, um, and, and Jackie was mentioning about sort of that vulnerability of, um, of politicians, but it also speaks of that in a way, vulnerability of the state, how it sort of seeks to sort of repress and silence those voices um, in such a, a um, uh, you know, a, a violent and, and, and deadly and lethal way, uh, and, and that in Brazil is um, extremely alarming. Um, the level of repression of protest, and um, it, it is not as um, sort of that impulse of protest is not as um, sort of light. Um, you. There are real risks of putting your body, you know, um, in, in in a public space, in in a space of protest. So so it is. Um, I, I uh, yeah. I just want to mention that sort of other side of um, that um, capacity to, or that those attempts to silence um, those voices and those concerns. Oh, perfect. Thank you for that, Sarah. And I think. I mean, it would be a whole field itself to compare the culture of protest between Australia and, and Brazil, but I think perhaps um, even more risks perhaps in the Brazilian context than there are in Australia. I'll kick things off with something that um, is, is a huge topic in itself, is that we talk about environmental justice, uh, or and the, this question is from Francis Bradshaw, it says we hear a lot about environmental justice these days, Perhaps this is something that we, we should have uh, scoped at the, the start of the, the talk. But to, to what extent, like, can we provide a definition on environmental justice or is this something that is obviously inherently very context specific or, um, yeah, what does environmental justice mean going forward as well but with, with, when we've got these sort of big existential problems like Gemma said, but also uh, really, really sort of micro uh, battles going on? I wonder if anyone has any thoughts on that. Yeah, so so broadly environmental justice is the uneven distribution of benefits and harms based, like environmental benefits and harms, right? So it came out of, um, well, the political movement, and I want to preface that importantly because obviously environmental justice has been understood 
since, you know, well, since it's colonization is an environmental justice issue. Everything is an environmental justice issue. Um, that's a catchphrase in my house. But, um, <laughs> but the, yeah, so when it sort of first emerged as a political movement, it was centered around communities of color unevenly experiencing uh, environmental harms in the US. Um, and then it's sort of developed both theoretically and politically in, in all of these different lenses through so many different realms. So there's also sort of issues of, as we said, access and procedural justice. And then there's issues of recognition because it's, if someone isn't recognized, it's almost impossible to even count whether or not they're being, you know, they're exposed to um, greater harms and, and what is a harm if, you know, if as Jackie's sort of been articulating, I, I wanna leave a lot of space for others to expand on this, but if someone doesn't have access to country and that is not recognized as a harm, then how do we recognize that within environmental justice spaces? Um, but the one thing that I do wanna add in before I open it back up is that question of context. Um, and so one of the things that I've been really grappling with, I had this ambitious idea that I was gonna design a sort of framework of Australian environmental justice. And what I've come to realize over the course of the PhD is, is even that question of Australian environmental justice is so broad. And, and communities experience and articulate justice differently, dependent on their context, dependent on their country, dependent on what's happening. And it's so important to get in at that ground level in order to understand what the injustice that's occurring is. Because otherwise, if we come from that sort of top-down lens with our fancy definitions of what environmental justice should look like, we're going to miss the actual experiences and we're going to miss instances of environmental injustice if they don't look like what we're expecting them to look that, That's excellent, Joanne. Thank you for that. Um, I might move to a question we've had from Kenny, if that's all right, in the chat, which I think would be really interesting. It's, it's for you, Sarah, about uh, the situation in Costa Rica uh, that you described as progressive at the start versus Brazil, and if you could just elaborate more on um, as what, what's going on there. Well, um, progressive in the sense, um, I spoke about it in the sense that a lot of its national discourse has been centered in the past, say, two, three decades around the environment. So um, it, it did have, especially in the 80s and 90s, um, a very strong push uh, towards uh, conservation um, and, and uh, renewable energies. Now, what I find interesting um, or disturbing, interesting is perhaps not the word, um, is how sort of these big and national narratives um, of environmental protection override um, indigenous rights. Um, and I think this is a critique um, that, that we can see a critique of the environmental movement from, from a different lens. Um, so Costa Rica um, is, is really a case that has a very clear um, environmental policies has, again, we can, can go back to think of that sort of legal structure and, and sort of those narratives around the environment. Um, of course, a very strong environmental movement, um, but, but again, overriding other um, 
uh, indigenous peoples and indigenous communities. Um, and the cost of, for example, um, having uh, renewable energies, I think Costa Rica has 99% um, of its energies comes from, from uh, dams, from um, water. So um, it has been praised as sort of this um, example in a way, at least in Central America, Latin America, of um, in terms of the environment and protection and conservation. But um, oftentimes this overrides um, a lot of indigenous rights and dispossession of land. So um, I see a tension there um, and um, it is perhaps mo more noticeable in a country as Costa Rica, but of course, I don't want to get into too much details about why um, between sort of the environmental movement and then other forms, um, but notably um, indigenous rights. Wonderful. Thank you for that, Sarah. Um, I might hand over to Daniel where we've had a hand raised um, and in, in the spirit of finishing up on time, we might have have your question, Dan, and then some final thoughts from the speakers and then, and then conclude. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, and thanks for some really interesting perspectives. Um, Jacqueline, this question is sort of directed um, towards you. I'm deeply curious about how we go about reconciling the two very different notions of progress that exist. You know, there's a certain notion of progress in the politics and the economics, um, you know, of Western Australia, westernized Australia. Um, and as I understand it, that's very different to the sort of indigenous notion of progress, which is not at all to do with technology um, and, and money as such. It's, of course, more to do with connecting um, with your people and your country. And that's what progress looks like. And I'm just curious in your experience, how do you go interfacing that notion of progress with the world in which you live? Uh, well, I mean, indigenous communities everywhere have, have been progressing and adapting, and, and, but not only adapting ourselves to our environment, but adapting the environment to ourselves. I think that, um, you know, what, what people miss and it's staring everyone in the face in Australia is that it looks the way it does. You know, people like Bill Gamage have written about this. Um, Bruce Pascoe's work looking at uh, whether or not we were farmers. I mean, really, who cares about the language? You know, we grew things, definitely, and we harvested things in addition to hunting things. And the things we hunted, we we husbanded them. You know, we we managed our environment. We didn't just sit every day hoping something would come past and run into the end of our spear or that, you know, um, we might find enough um, root vegetables to dig up for the day or seeds to make into something. We were, you know, you, you wouldn't live very long as humans if you worked like that. So we've always been, um, uh, you know, engaged in an economy. We have economies. Um, it's just that we don't have this. I, I've really starting to fixate on this extractive capitalist economy. Extractive capitalism is like coronavirus. It, eventually it will kill all its hosts and that's the end of that. Bye-bye coronavirus and um, bye-bye hosts. Um, that's what we're doing. We're treating now the Western model, the capitalist model, the post-industrial revolution model, if you like, in, a, in the world now that dominates is we'll extract and extract and extract and then when it's gone, 
there's nothing left. So I don't see how, I don't see that as sophisticated or in any way at all clever. Um, and the technologies that are designed, like the giant donut machine, I'm really fixating on that. Whoever said that in the chat, thank you for that. That's just making me happy. Um, you know, it's brilliant. And all these people, brilliant technology, high-vis, brilliant technology. Um, yeah, great. But you've just destroyed something that took millions of years to develop and you can't put it back together again. And that's what we're doing with the, the whole planet. We are extracting it to the point where it won't exist anymore and neither will we. Something else will exist. I don't think the earth is going to explode as, as a result of us destroying or poisoning its atmosphere or, you know, damming all the rivers and um, burning all the trees. But um, we, it certainly won't. Be. I mean, the dinosaurs tried that, didn't they? <laughs> Along came a whole lot of volcanoes, you know. So it's just, it. you know, we... It, we actually are the clever economists and we are the progressives. And if you listen to how Indigenous people manage country, it's actually going back to listening to a point where we, before we were completely destroying the place. That's not to say that everything we did was perfect. I don't know that catastrophic fire is a fabulous way to manage the environment, but a certain amount of fire works, you know, and Australia is now fire adapted and we're still here as people. So I think it's the, it's the thinking, the philosophy, you know, like what, what is it that we can do now to, to keep the lifestyles we value or that a very small number of people in the world value, let me just say, because most people in the world are still living with very little um, and are actually still very clever at surviving with very little. Um, we need to move away from the hunter and gatherer woolies economy um, and make sure that we're able to, you know, engage with this, you know, the slow movements that people are into now, the understanding how to live and how to, how to actually be able to, and, and most of all, valuing community, learning from community and keeping community together. Gemma's point is really good. The worst end of what happens in, in the capitalist world is that community is destroyed. And Marx himself um, you know, in preparing for Das Kapital, um, actually did a whole lot of ethnographic studies of very community-based people. Um, Adam Morton from Sydney University reacquainted me with this recently. Marx's ethnographies are fascinating because he looked at how people collectively work well together and then he developed his thinking. It's not about destroying it's about working together and working together with the environment seeing the environment as an active partner in what we do right it's not it's not an either or so I guess um in some ways I'm saying you don't have a question there Daniel sorry <laughs> thank you for that Jackie that that's wonderful and a really nice circling back to these sort of broader philosophical questions that that um, underpin everything. Um, I might just hand over to Sarah and Gemma just for a 30-second sort of um, uh, sign-off or, or final thoughts, and then we might wrap up. No, there's there's no way I can top off Jackie's uh, concluding remarks. Um, um, yeah, I think you, you absolutely came full circle. Perhaps just, um, you know, that idea of uh, the law never being neutral and stable and our, our duty sort of to constantly interrogate um, the law um, and um, 
civil action is one of the strategies that we have to do it. Um, so, um, you know, part of democracy is, it, it's, it's enacted in very different ways. Um, but certainly protest is one of those, but not the only one. I agree with Sarah entirely. I couldn't possibly attempt to top um, those closing remarks. So I think I'm just going to use my 30 seconds to thank you guys all for participating in this conversation, both everyone in the audience, but especially Jackie and Sarah and Sam for facilitating this. It's just been like such, especially as, a, as very much a student in this space, it's just been such an enriching um, conversation to be a part of. And I think exactly what you were saying earlier, Jackie, that thing of... Um, these kinds of conversations have power and they have weight and hopefully we can we can keep going and we can continue this conversation forward and everyone can continue this conversation forward perfect no thank you very much and, and a huge thank you to um to jackie to Gemma, and to sarah for giving up your time today and, and speaking um from your respective areas of expertise and your experiences and a huge thank you to you all in the audience for for coming along and listening and uh, i think that that this sort of really gives weight to um yeah to the conversation we're having and as jackie said it makes conversations like these um have have power and have meaning um i will give a, a a bit of a plug for both uh the sei which at which uh evie just just popped into the chat there the social pipes there and also the the university of sydney philosophy society which is the a student society that that you know looks to hold conversations like this and sort of get people involved in philosophy and, and, and putting a philosophical spin on things that we hear uh in the media and that type of thing um thank you very very much everyone for coming and, and enjoy the rest of your rainy uh wednesday afternoon it's just started to rain on the tin roof here so i'll i'll mute myself before i deafen you all but thank you very much